sometimes drastic situations call for drastic measures. Extreme problems call for extreme solutions. Uh, if you saw the movie 127 Hours when it was in Dubbo a few weeks back, maybe you'd appreciate that. 127 Hours was one of the movies uh, nominated for an Academy Award during the week and it tells the true story of a mountain climber, Aaron Ralston, whose arm became trapped under a rock when he was climbing in Utah. And as the hours ticked by and after countless attempts to try and free himself from his position, Aaron eventually realised that he was going to die there unless he amputated his own arm. And so after five days of being trapped under this rock, he finally gathered the willpower and the brute strength to firstly snap his forearm against the rock and then cut it off with a dull knife. It is a remarkable story. Uh, Evidently, when the movie first started showing in the US, people were actually fainting in the cinemas. So overwhelming was the whole situation. Sometimes drastic situations call for drastic measures. Now, this morning in 1 Corinthians, we have reached one of those moments. Uh, We have reached a problem so serious within the church that the Apostle Paul says it's going to take a very drastic solution to fix it. So what's the problem? Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now this first marks a bit of a shift in the letter. Uh, If you've been with us the last few weeks, you realise that up until now, the whole letter has been given over to the problem of factions and divisions within the church. But now in chapter 5, the topic changes a little bit. Now the problem that is on view is a particularly nasty case of sexual immorality. A man has his father's wife. In other words, a bloke is having sex with his father's wife. Now, one assumes that the woman in question is his stepmother and not his biological mother. Otherwise, Paul would have used the word mother rather than the phrase, the deliberate phrase, father's wife. So it might be that the father has died and the son has remarried his stepmom, although there's no mention of marriage. It might be that the son has seduced his stepmother away from his father. It might be that both the father and the son are sharing the same woman. It's not impossible that this is the bloke's biological mother, but that that level of incest is so appalling that Paul can't even bring himself to say the word straight out, and so he uses a roundabout phrase to say it. Whatever the exact uh, situation, it is a level of sexual immorality that Paul says even pagans balk at. And it is compounded by pride. Unbelievably, the church doesn't seem to think that this is a big deal. Verse 1 again. A man has his father's wife, verse 2, and you are proud? Now, this is so warped, friends, that it begs belief, really. It is sickening. In what possible universe could the Corinthian church be proud of this type of immorality? Well, it's worth noting that Paul does say that and you are proud, not and you are proud of it. 
And so it could be that the church isn't so much proud of the immoral act as they are proud of the particular person who's performing the act and therefore they're willing to ignore it. Perhaps this is one of the guys who has been mentioned in the previous chapter. Perhaps this is one of the men in the church who they are taking pride in over and against others. Maybe he's a high flyer. Maybe he's got a high public profile in the community. And so even though they know about the sin, they're willing to overlook it. It would not be the first time a church has swept things under the carpet so as to protect a high-profile person. Maybe that's what's going on here. Paul is disgusted. This is an appalling problem. And therefore, it's going to need a drastic solution. Verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul wants the bloke kicked out of the church. In verse 4, he describes it as, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Now that phrase, handing him over to Satan, it's a little tricky to understand, but in the New Testament you see the world outside of God's church, the world out there was seen as the realm of Satan. And so to be expelled from Christ's household, to not be allowed to join in with your other brothers and sisters in Christ when they assemble together like this morning as God's church, that is to be delivered out into the realm of Satan. To hand him over to Satan is to therefore say, look, your sin is so serious you have no place in gathering with us. Go out into Satan's world. That's where your behaviour is more in keeping. It's a strong thing to say. Drastic situations can call for drastic measures. Mind you, having said that, just how drastic this solution is, I don't know, maybe it's lost a little on us nowadays because of how we seem to so undervalue the privilege of getting together with other Christians. I mean, think about it. Here is Paul wanting to punish an unspeakable sin which even non-Christians would balk at. And so here he is, handing out the worst possible discipline that he can think of, of actually not letting someone join in on their public meetings of the church. And yet nowadays, that's exactly what people choose to do. Because you can't be bothered organising the week enough. Because, we can't, uh, because we're just feeling tired. Because another more attractive Option comes up. So often we actively choose to not come along here. How messed up must our values be? How hopelessly must we underestimate what is happening here this morning? For the Apostle Paul, not being here this morning, that is the most drastic last resort discipline he can think of. Yet we hardly think twice of doing it. Friends, to be here this morning is a rich privilege. We gather as God's people. To be expelled from meeting with other Christians in your church, that is a drastic punishment. The Apostle Paul realises that, even if some of us may not. And so he now goes on to give three reasons for doing it. Here are three reasons why such an extreme solution is warranted. Reason number one, it is so the person in question might be saved. Verse 5, again. 
hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The first reason given for putting this fellow out of the public fellowship is so that he might be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, it's hoped that through such a drastic punishment, it's hoped that the guy will be shocked back into his senses, that hopefully he'll repent, hopefully he'll stop his sin, hopefully he'll return to Jesus, hopefully his spirit will be saved. Now, this is a good lesson to bear in mind because it helps us to understand the tone of the passage. Okay, because please, here we are, we've got a chapter all about kicking a guy out of the church. Please don't misinterpret the tone of this chapter as one of hard-heartedness or unfeeling or ruthless or heavy-handedness or heartlessness. That's not the mood of this chapter at all. The primary motive here is love. The very first reason Paul gives for doing this is so that the guy might be saved. Indeed, remember from verse 2, this is all done in a sense of grief and sadness. There is a very real sense in which Paul doesn't want to have to be doing this. Remember a close friend of ours once telling us that one of her most vivid memories from childhood uh, are the times when her dad disciplined her by actually smacking her. And her memory was sitting in her bedroom, feeling a little sore from the smacking, but even more, the memory she had was hearing her dad crying in the next room because he'd had to hit his little girl and he hated doing it. That's the tone of this chapter. No one is enjoying this. But sometimes love has to do hard things, especially when the stakes involved are whether or not someone's going to be saved on the day of the Lord. But Paul goes on. There's a second reason for this drastic action. It's not just for the sake of the immoral man himself. It's for the sake of the others in the church as well. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Okay, now Paul here is speaking of yeast working through the whole batch of dough in the same way that we might talk about one bad apple spoiling the bunch. Because think about it, if this guy is sleeping with his stepmother and everyone knows about it and nothing is done about it, what is that saying? Is that saying that the church thinks it's okay to do this sort of stuff? Well, the next thing you'll know, someone else will start doing it. No, no, to make it absolutely clear that this sort of immorality is not okay for the sake of others, as well as for the sake of the guy himself, he needs to be removed. Now, friends, look, I'm actually wondering whether it's exactly this second reason. I'm wondering whether that's why Paul is going for such a public form of discipline in this instance. Because, you know, there's lots of other more discreet, less obvious forms of church discipline that aren't as public, but which nevertheless might help the guy wake up to his senses. But in this particular case, because the church has remained silent uh, and there's ambiguity as to whether or not the church actually condones it, because of that ambiguity, it seems as if that's why he's going especially for this public form of discipline. It shows to show beyond doubt that this sort of stuff is not okay. It's the one bad apple principle in one sense, for the sake of others. Or as Paul puts it, it's the old yeast principle. And as the passage goes on, it becomes obvious as to why he's chosen yeast as his illustration and not bad apples. Verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast 
so that you may have a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now that mention of Christ being our Passover lamb, that shows that in all this mention of yeast, he's not actually just plucking an illustration at random. He's actually tapping into an Old Testament event of the Passover. Remember the Passover? That was back in Exodus. That was when, when God sent the Passover plague against Egypt so as to rescue his people from slavery. Because, and in the lead up to the Passover, uh, the Israelites held a feast of unleavened bread in which they would get rid of all the yeast out of their homes. And they would get rid of the yeast out of their homes as a symbol of them distancing themselves from Egypt. It was a symbol of them being so eager to get away and out of Egypt as God's rescued people that they wouldn't even have time for the bread to rise. And Paul here is tapping into that and saying that putting this guy out of the church is the equivalent of an Israelite putting yeast out of their homes at the time of Passover. Do it to show that you are eager to be God's people. Do it to show that you want to distance yourself from sin because you have been distanced from sin. Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed so as to make them the church of God. And so, verse 7, they need to remove this guy and, and be as you really are. And that thought of being who you really are, it's all leading into a third reason for expelling this immoral man. Because being who we really are means realising that as God's church, we judge sin in each other. Chapter 5, verse 12. What business is, is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now, do you see Paul's point here? He's telling the Corinthians that they should expel this wicked man because, one, for his sake, two, for the sake of others, so that they'll know it's wrong, and here, three, as God's church, we are in the business of judging each other. We're not in the business of moralising to those outside the church. We are in the business of judging sin within each other. In fact, chapter 6, verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with one another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if you judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now, friends, don't be put off by the fact that we've now jumped into chapter 6, as if, you know, the chapter break shows that he's changing topic. It's not a change in topic at all. Uh, he's still dealing with this issue of sexual immorality. In fact, if you look, scan across quickly to the end of chapter 6, you'll see that he's still talking about it right to the end of the chapter. We'll have more to say about it next week. He hasn't changed topic He's simply moving deeper into his third reason for expelling the wicked bloke. The reason being now that, of course, you should be disciplining this immoral fellow because haven't you woken up to the fact that as saints of God, you will be involved in judging the world? Verse 3 of chapter 6, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Now, these are tantalising verses. Uh, usually the Bible talks about Jesus being the judge of the world at the last day, but here we're told somehow as Christians we also will be involved in that judgment. I'm not sure how. I wish I could say more. I, I don't think I can. It might be related to what Jesus says about how people will be judged 
by him based on how they have treated us. You know, in Matthew, he talks about whoever did, uh, did not do for the least of mine, um, they did not do for me, that sort of stuff. Maybe we'll have a part to play in the judgment of the world because people will be implicated in the way that they've treated us as Christians. Not sure. Maybe it's a lot more than that. I'm not sure. Whatever the specifics, Paul's big point here is very clear. We will be involved in judgment. We will sit somehow on God's court. And the punchline for the Corinthians here is, guys, if, if we will have that sort of awesome responsibility, why on earth are you not disciplining the immoral guy within your own church? We have a role as judges of sin. And look, it's into this context that you get all these verses about taking other Christians to court. Uh, because it seems that in the Corinthian church, different people were suing one another. And Paul drops it into the conversation here because of the massive irony of it all. That here they are, a group of people who will judge the world, and yet on the one hand there's this blatantly immoral guy within the church who they refuse to judge. Plus, even when they have relatively trivial cases, they still refuse to judge and they take those cases to people outside the church. And he's massively frustrated by it. Verse 3. Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you, ha- if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? You're feeling the frustration. Guys, you will judge the world, in one sense, whatever that means. But... If that's the case, what are you doing getting people from outside the church to judge even trivial cases within the church? And more to the point, remember the context, what on earth are you doing not judging really serious sin like that bloke who's having his father's wife? Now, do you see the flow of ideas that's happening in in this section? I'm labouring the point a little bit uh, because this passage in the beginning of chapter 6 Sometimes it's, it's sort of used as a blanket statement to say that you must never, ever, ever take any Christian to court. That is not the thrust of the verses. Okay? The overall focus and content of, context of the passage is the massive irony of what's involved, that these peop- this church are going to be saints who will judge the world, yet they refuse to exercise that role. Not only with trivial cases, but especially with this guy who's having his father's wife. Now, I realise that might raise a whole lot of questions about whether or not there is ever a place to take a Christian to court. And we can chat about that over morning to you in the growth group. That'll be a good chance. For now, though, please don't miss the big issues at play here. The big issue is sexual immorality and in particular, a blatant, scandalous case of it. A case which up until now, the church has been silent over. And from go to woe, Paul has been saying, you need to discipline the guy. You need, in this case, to put him out of your fellowship. Why? Well, firstly, to try and save the guy, help him wake up to himself, Secondly, so it won't corrupt others in the church and lead them away from being who they really are. And thirdly, speaking of who you really are, we Christians have a role to play in judgment. We take sin seriously and we discipline each other when it's needed. We take sin seriously. 
and we discipline each other when it's needed. We take sin seriously and we discipline each other when it's needed. And maybe that's the lesson that would be good for us to take away with this morning. We take sin seriously and we discipline each other when it's needed. And look, I know sexual immorality is especially the sin at the heart of this section and next Sunday we will sort of zero down a little bit more on that as a specific sin but there's also a place here for speaking more broadly about sin. I mean in chapter 5 verse 11 the passage itself broadens out to talk about greed and drunkenness and, and, and slander. So I think there's, there's, there's a place for broadening it out to speak of sin in general. That we take sin seriously. We take sin seriously. We together take sin seriously. Because that's the thing about this passage. There's a very big group ownership of the things running through here. This chapter is not about you or and I personally dealing with our own sin in private. That certainly has its place. But this is a passage more about a church family who's in things together. This is a passage about a church family who understands who they really are and so they don't just get together on a Sunday and maybe a couple of hours during the week at a growth group and then they go off into their own little homes and separate lives. This is a, church, this is a picture of a church who are doing life together. This is a picture of a church where every person belongs to the other. This is a picture of a family in which each person cares for and loves each other enough to maybe even have to do and say the hard things. This is a picture of a church family who take corporate responsibility for each other out of love. See, how do you react when you are confronted with the sin of another Christian? Have there, has there even been times when you have heard of another brother or sister in Christ, maybe even another Christian within this church? Has there been times when, when you have heard of someone who is struggling with a sin or maybe even actively embracing a particular sin? How have you reacted? What did you think? How did you feel? Self-righteous? I'd never do that. Disbelieving? I can't believe they did that. Malicious? I can't wait to tell others they did that. Indifferent? I don't really care they did that. In this passage, God is telling us we should feel grief. Oh man, they've done that. How can I help? How can I make sure they'll be saved on the day of the Lord? And so with great humility and gentleness and love, we treat sin seriously when we see it in each other. And if you don't like the sound of that, you either don't understand how serious sin is 
or you don't understand who a church really is. Let's pray. Father, help us to be who we really are. Father, help us to help each other with sin. Help us to put aside our pride, our self-righteousness, our protectiveness. Help us in love. Treat sin seriously in each other. Amen.